1: Father, thank you for giving us a moment here, a time out of this week to sit here together with one another to, to praise you, to, to pray to you, and not to hear from you, from your word. It's a privilege, Lord, that you put this in front of us, that you, that you give it to us in our own language, and that you then set aside a time when by your spirit you will teach us, and I pray that you would do just that this morning. You would take this passage and that you would teach us but not just for our intellectual growth. Or would you speak to us, that obviously we have sung, we have prayed, we have, we have heard about it already this morning, but would you teach us this morning about mercy in a way that is not just intellectual but is actually heart touching and heart moving? It is an amazing wonder that you, you, the type of God you are, With us, the type of people we are, would be so deeply, widely, so long merciful with us. Thank you. Teach us about that, press it into us, and move us with mercy this morning, please. Thank you. Amen. Most English Bibles have included section headings above the different portions of the scripture to kind of help us navigate through the the text, and they're not actually part of the Bible itself, but they're helpful. If you want to find a certain story, you can kind of look for a heading and it kind of helps you navigate your way through And The passage before us this morning in Matthew 9, at least in my Bible, is called Jesus Calls Matthew. Probably have something similar in your Bible, and it's helpful help you get around. But I suspect that if Matthew himself were to write a section heading for this passage, verses 9 to 13, he would have written something different, something less about him. He tells us this story here with with the exclusion of a few details. Mark and Luke have other things that he leaves out because he wants our focus to be, in fact, more on Jesus, what what Jesus is like, what he's about. Almost as if Matthew would say, yes, sure, he called me and I followed. But think about Jesus. Why was he even talking to me? And What was it about Jesus? Think about Jesus. What was it about Jesus that actually drew me to him? Look at Jesus here, that he called me, even me. So we're going to do this one. We're going to look at Jesus as he calls Matthew. But before we do that, it would be helpful to remember the passage's context. We looked at this two weeks ago, verses 2 through 8. Some people, as we saw, had brought a paralyzed man to Jesus. He needed to be healed, obviously, and Jesus was a great healer. And they brought him in front of him, and Jesus forgave his sins, thereby making a point emphasizing that our sin is actually our greatest problem, far greater than anything material or physical like, like paralysis. Our sin is our greatest problem, and therefore having our sin dealt with, being healed of our sin is our greatest human need. Jesus pressed on that point, and then he physically healed the man also to prove the point that Jesus is the one sent by God with authority to forgive sin. That's the context. Jesus is the one with authority to forgive sin, and now verse nine, a section that perhaps we could label Jesus in mercy pursuing sinners. Authority to forgive sin, watch. So let me read the passage here, and then I'm gonna pass back through it to kinda catch a couple of the details that it will be important for us to see, and then we'll draw up two observations from it. So this is Matthew nine, beginning in verse nine. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Look at verse 9. It just says, as Jesus passed on from there, which doesn't give us any particular details about the exact time or the exact location, but with the connection to the previous context, it's more than likely right outside of the city of Capernaum, a very, very natural place for a tax booth. They were on roads, people passed by, they collected the tax from the commerce that, that was present. So Jesus passes on by and, and finds there a tax booth with a tax collector named Matthew just sitting there doing his job. Nobody likes taxes. Not not today, of course. But back then, there, a tax collector was despised. Despised. Because they more or less worked as agents for the conquering, oppressing Romans. And because of how tax collecting was done, it was sort of like a form of official legal robbery. Commerce comes by, they take the required tax, and then it was their right to take more on top of that to pay their own salaries, however they saw fit, and they saw fit. So they were rich. Tax collectors were wealthy because of what they took from their countrymen in the service of the the hated Romans, who of course were Gentiles, and so one way or another, having to interact with the Romans and having to interact with all the people who were passing by, one way or another, taxmen became ceremonially unclean and their houses also. So, this guy, Matthew, in Jewish culture, has just nothing going for him. He's an unclean thief, corrupt, and a collaborator by deliberate personal choice. That's what he does. And yet somehow he ends up writing this gospel that we're studying. The gospel of Matthew. How did that happen? Well, here's the story, sort of. There's so few details we don't exactly know. Matthew tells us this, and Mark and Luke add in a few other things, clarifying, for instance, that the house mentioned in verse 10, that's Matthew's house. And all the people there, those are Matthew's friends and coworkers that Matthew invited over to this feast and Luke adds in that when we just get the simple follow me and he came, well Luke adds in he left everything. He left everything. All of the wealth and all the ease and all the comfort and he got up and followed Jesus. So very, very unlike the previous two would-be disciples that we saw back in chapter eight. See the larger context here. We're getting here in chapters eight and nine. We're getting authority of Jesus, authority of Jesus, authority of Jesus, disciple. Authority of Jesus, authority of Jesus, disciple. But back in chapter eight, remember those guys there? They wanted to follow Jesus. Sort of. As long as they could make it fit with the kind of life they also wanted. And Jesus said, No. And so those guys prove examples of the negative, not what discipleship looks like. And here, Matthew, Jesus says, follow me, and Matthew says, yep, no negotiation. He got up and he followed him. This is what discipleship is supposed to look like. And we could go into that, but Matthew doesn't, because Matthew doesn't really want to talk about himself. He wants to talk about Jesus. He wants us to look at something in Jesus, and he shows us who Jesus was through the lens of this meal at his house that he threw for Jesus and for all of his friends so they could meet Jesus too. Verse 10, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with, that is, were settled down to eat a meal with, Jesus and his disciples tax collectors and sinners there and also in the Pharisees question verse 11 that was kind of like a a a pat phrase a label that catches a category of people because the Pharisees essentially looked at the world as if they're kind of like two groups of people good people and bad people the good people Pharisees being the top of the top. The good people are the people who are trying to follow God, who are, who are paying attention to what God says, what he requires, how he commands sacrifices, what he says about fast, what we can wear and can't eat and can. And, and the Pharisees were really good at that, but everybody who's kind of trying, they're all good people. And then there are bad people who don't give a rip about any of that, tax collectors and sinners. Not even trying. By choice are corrupt collaborators and unclean. They are outside of the normal religious circles, these bad people. And therefore, they're the kind of people that good people, good, God-fearing people, don't hang out with. Good, God-fearing people look at them ones as shameful, as threats even. Bad influences on my kids. We stay away. As offensive They are offensive to us, us good people, and surely highly offensive to the holy, 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 righteous and just God of heaven. They are a stench in his nostrils. That's the world. That's Matthew and Matthew's buddies. And he invites them all over, and the Pharisees see it, and kind of like a great big collection of rats, they say, ugh, they're they just disgusted by it, but they're more irritated by the fact that in the middle of all of that sits Jesus. What do you do with that? Right in the middle of all of those ones is Jesus. How on earth is this rabbi, got to put that in quotes, rabbi, this religious teacher, Comfortably communing in an unclean house at table with unclean, messed up, irreligious, sinful people? Are you kidding me? They raise it as a question, but of course it's really an accusation. Your teacher, talking to the disciples, your teacher is incredibly ungodly. What are do you doing following him? They ask the disciples, and Jesus himself gives the answer. And as we zero in on the last two verses here, what we're going to draw out of those two verses are two observations, one about the heart of Jesus and one about the mission, One about his, his character, what he's like, and then what he's up to, what he's doing with it. The second one's much shorter, so the first one's going to be a little bit longer, and then we'll come to the second one finally at the end. But two observations, and here's the first. Jesus has a heart of loving mercy towards sinners, so come to him. Jesus has a heart of loving mercy towards sinners, so come to him. Right away we need to deal with the word sinner, because it's in this passage a number of times, And it strikes us as a little bit blunt and perhaps a little bit offensive maybe. And it would be nice if we could just leave it on the lips of the Pharisees because they're, of course, the ones who use the language, tax collector and sinner. And they meant it as an insult for sure. So it would be nice if we could just kind of set that aside except Jesus uses it too. Meaning something different, not as an insult. So we need to talk about this and be be careful to kind of keep a spot in our minds. Maybe not in our language because people will hear that wrong and may be put off by it, but, but to keep a spot in our minds for the honesty in the word sinner. It's an honest, it's an accurate word. And we want to keep that spot, not so that we can use it as a, as a correct insult, not, not a dig, but we want to keep that because of the good ironically, because of the good that gets attached to it here in this passage. Not that the word, not that that being a sinner is good, but there's good that gets attached to that. So follow this. In a way, in a way, Jesus is going to agree with the Pharisees that there are two types of people. There are good people and bad people. You're right, sort of. There are healthy people and sick people. There are righteous people and there are sinners. Jesus says that. But of course, in reality, what he really means is there are righteous people, so-called righteous people. Because, of course, he's talking about the Pharisees when he says that to them. People who think of themselves as righteous. Because you guys have reduced God's requirements to particular works that you can clarify and delineate and particular attitudes that you can express you can you can talk about acting like you are loving I'm talking about loving in the heart you can talk about how you are acting nicely I'm talking about something in here but when you reduce it to something that is external and expressed in a behavior well then you think I can check 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 I can do that or try very hard to And you think of yourself then as acceptable and pleasing in his eyes. Well, if that's who you are, if that's what you think you are, then I guess I don't have anything to say to you. If you think of yourself as healthy, well, I'm a doctor, so I guess we don't have any contact. Of course, though, all of the rest of the Bible makes really clear that Jesus would continue. Of course, however, that means that you're going to face the rest of life and the coming judgment without me. And there is no one righteous, no, not one, says the Old Testament and the New. Jesus, of course, really is tracking here with what Paul would say in the book of Romans, quoting the Old Testament, no one righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, definitely, as a brief aside here, the Sermon on the Mount does talk about how Jesus has come to make us righteous, righteous in standing and to grow us in righteousness. And In another context, sure, we wanna be righteous, we, we, we love the fact that God makes us righteous and grows us, absolutely, but here, you don't wanna be this category. The so-called righteous, because Jesus just says, I got nothing for you, you're on your own, good luck. In fact, though, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all are sinners from the start. The two categories is actually only one. We all, every single one of us, broken and fallen, sick and sinful, wounded, this is in fact where the Sermon on the Mount began. poor in spirit, mourning over our sin, meek and humble. That's people, that's us. Sometimes in very, very open ways, like perhaps the people gathered at Matthew's house who don't give a rip and are telling you so, but a lot of times trying to be good but falling far short of God's actual standard. Do you remember the actual standard? You have heard it said, thou shalt not murder. Well, I tell you, if you're angry and you slander somebody in your heart, you're guilty. All of us, sinners. Now, it's necessary to work on that for just a second, that idea, that word of sinner, so that we realize that we're all there, that, that all of us fall into that category, all of us are in need of what Jesus is bringing here. But that being said, and now, now done, this is not a passage designed to bring us conviction of sin. So I'm not trying to, to push this out there towards you and, and, and make you feel sinner. Sinner. Mourn over that. No, 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 Exact opposite. This is a passage that's explicitly designed to talk to people who know that's me and then to deliver to those people some great good. When you sit there, this is not designed to make you mourn. When you are sitting there mourning over your sin, right in that spot, the, the point of this passage is to say, That's great, because Jesus has something for you, a great, big, wide-open, loving, merciful heart. Not for people who don't think they need that, but for those who know they do. He has a great, big, wide-open, merciful heart. Surely this is the point that, that blew away Matthew. Everybody I know, every religious person I know, If they even look at me, looks down their nose at me and despises me and casts me out. And this guy comes up to me, talks to me, approaches me, and comes to my living room. What are you talking about? No way. This blew him away. This is the Jesus of the Bible? Are you kidding me? Most of us in the room are way too long in the tooth in our Christianity Which means, been a Christian for way too long. This blew him away. Mercy? You mean when you, the sent one from heaven, when you draw up, you see me there, sinner. You see me there, sinner, and you draw up towards me. That it's not a raised hand ready to strike me. But it's, in fact, wide open arms they to embrace me? Are you kidding me? Yeah. Yeah. That's the truth. He's got something for you. Wide open arms of loving welcome. Not condemnation, not judgment, merciful love. Verse 13. Take another look at Hosea 6.6, 6, Jesus says, to people who know the Bible, they think. Take another look at Hosea 6.6. The context there is about how God is going to bless his people, but he has to do that after he first judges his people because his people are hard-hearted. He wants mercy, not the offering of sacrifice. He wants people who know him, not the people who walk through the the trappings of religion. I desire mercy, a heart attitude of mercy. That's what I want. The word mercy here that depending on the different context where it is it's all over the Bible where it is in its different context it could be translated differently sometimes it's translated as loving kindness sometimes it's translated as steadfast love the basic idea the difference in translation is going to fit the context and the basic idea behind it is a gracious gentle affection towards another that perseveres sticks with so as to do good to this other person or this, this other entity. And if it's God, then we would stick with him to bless him and honor him. But if it's people who sometimes mess up some things, there might be some need for mercy, some compassion even as a way you can translate that. A, a lifting off, a, a removing of something that is hard and painful and natural and coming and deserved. Maybe that's an illness. Maybe it's an affliction. Maybe it's a judgment. A lifting off of that, so that blessing instead can come. That's mercy. And you see the two Christian words of mercy and grace. You see how they are very closely connected, because mercy would be the taking off, and then grace would be the giving of. They're kind of like this: mercy and grace, paired together. But mercy is the removing of the hard thing. the taking aside of, of the attitude of judgment, of the taking aside of the pain, of the suffering. This is the heart of God, and it's the heart of God, the Son, Jesus, for sinners. Mercy. Now, we don't have enough details here in the passage to know exactly how that could be accomplished. It is not just like a hug and a pat on the back. There, there, it's going to be okay. Okay. That is not how God enacts mercy. The reason that God can remove off of people the judgment that is due to us for our sin, as sinners we are worthy of, deserving of judgment. And he can remove that off because he's actually here to head to the cross to take it onto himself. He's going to be a just God paying for that judgment ourself, on himself and removing it off of us in mercy. That all is coming up. That hasn't happened yet, so it's not clarified here. But for everyone who comes to him saying, I'm a sinner, please have mercy on me, his answer is going to be, yes, here's the cross. Here's where I enact my justice on Jesus so I can give to you forgiveness. And then I can begin to work in you to build you up and grow you and heal you and make you new. For anyone who comes, that's his offer of mercy. and It involves the cross. Of course, it's not here yet, though, but that's the gospel, the good news. That Jesus came to go to the cross to pay for our sins, that he can offer mercy to those who know they need it, and come say, please, come to him, he's a God of mercy. Christian, that's what's going on in your life right now, that he had mercy on you and is having mercy on you every moment of every day. And if you're not a Christian yet, know you're a sinner, realize that you're a sinner, fallen and broken, and what Jesus says is, wide open arms, come. Come. There's a judgment coming. He warned about that very clearly, but that's not now. That's coming later. Now the offer is come. All who were poor in spirit realize how weak and small they are. All who mourn over their sin and say, that's me. I'm busted up. I'm messed up. I'm away from you, and I know it and I need help, help. Every single person who says that to this Jesus finds his arms wide open, and then he closes them around you. Come. That can be you if you want to come to him. But The point here in the passage is, in fact, to point out the character of Jesus just just right there, that's who he is. This is his heart for you. Coming to people where they are, not because they're fine where they are. A doctor recognizes that sickness, I'm gonna come and heal it. And he doesn't say, come back to me once you've been healed, then I'll help That's too much of a mess. Come back when you're well. A a doctor looks at a patient and she says, I'm going to take the risk, in fact, the risk of moving towards you. Are you contagious? I might need to take some precautions. We'll talk about that a little bit later. But I'm not going to say, sort it out, then we'll talk. God does not say, fix yourself, clean up a little bit, get yourself a little bit back together, then we'll talk. Right there in all of your messed upness, that's the heart of God to come and draw near the heart of mercy. That's his heart for you. He knows everything about you and everything about your sin and everything about what might not be sin but is just trouble. He knows all about every detail of your brokenness. He knows every shameful thing that's in your past. All the stuff that we try to hide from other people because we would be crushed by the humiliation of it. All the stuff we try never to think about again because it's such a burden on us. He knows every single one of those details. He sees it clearly in, in vivid color. And right there in that spot, he comes. Jesus is sitting in this guy's dining room on purpose. Jesus didn't even hold court somewhere else and say, Come to me if you'd like. He came to that guy's house. He approached him at the tax booth. He drew up close to all those folks and said, Here, Here's me. I'm with you. Let's talk. Not because you're well, but because. I'm a great doctor. He is comfortable coming close to you to help you, and he will make you different. Do you realize that, and do you think about it often, about Jesus' attitude towards you in your sickness, in your sin? We regularly try to hide from all that stuff, but there is beautiful, beautiful help in, in finding Jesus to be the open, the welcoming place where I can bring out all of this stuff that I don't want any of you to know. I've got a cupboard of stuff I don't want any of you to know either. You do too. We all have a cupboard of stuff. We don't want anybody here to know. But it is so helpful. If you're not a Christian, this, this is beautiful. If you are a Christian, same. It is so helpful to find... I can put this right there in front of Jesus and what I'm going to find from him is not like, mm, mm. are you kidding me? You're not going to find that. No, 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 no. What you're going to find is, "I, I knew that, yeah. I'm so glad you brought that out so that we can deal with it. I'm a great doctor. I'm really good at fixing things. I'm so glad you finally brought that out to me. It's really helpful and really healing to be able to do that with Jesus. Not, and he does not, I gotta say this like, again, he does not say, and that's fine, however you are. No, he says, let's move on from there. i want to make you like me. What it means to be fully human and right, I'm gonna make you like me. That's Jesus. Ever since the fall in the garden, we have disbelieved that. Ever since the fall in the garden, there's been a voice whispering in your head, hide from God. And the truth from God is, come. You'll find me to be a God of mercy. Come, 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 come. Come as you are. You won't stay as you are, but come as you are. Come. Come to him. And I think what we find when we come to him, we find this God of mercy for us, and then, I think, we sit in that, we soak it up, we take it in, and that moves us to actually then go with him, which takes us to the second observation, which is shorter. Jesus has, first, he has a heart of loving mercy, and secondly, Jesus has a mission of merciful pursuit of sinners with and through us. Jesus has a mission of merciful pursuit of sinners with and through us. At the end of verse 13, after mentioning I'm a a doctor, of course I'm around sick people. Here's what the Old Testament says about what God actually desires, what his heart is actually like. He kind of concludes by saying, and so for this reason, I came to earth not to call the righteous who don't think they need me, but to call sinners who know they do. That's my mission. I've come to call sinners back to the love of God. So, we consider the mission component of this passage I think it's helpful to first keep in mind, to remain clear about something, that it is Jesus who is on mission. Somebody once said, maybe you've heard this, uh, seen in different places, that the Great Commission, to use some Christian lingo here, you know, sometimes the, the end of the, the Gospel of Matthew is called the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, that the Great Commission is actually Jesus' mission, sounds like he's giving us an assignment. He's actually saying, I'm going, wanna come? He's the one actually on mission. He's the one who's gone out to call all of his sheep in from all the different nations. It's, It's him doing the work. He is on mission and his mission, clarified here, is not to teach us to obey, not to teach us what it means to behave like a Christian. Certainly not to come and congratulate and reward the good people who have done that well. He's not come here to fix our social or our political issues or our economic issues, be they Roman or other. he's come to call sinners to God which means to call them to turn from self, that's to turn, that's the word for repent, repent is the word for turning, to turn from self and from trusting in ourselves, to turn back to faith in God and what he's done in Jesus now the other things that I mentioned teaching us how to obey, teaching us how to walk like a Christian, addressing social and political issues, those things very, very often do happen. If and as he works in a person and he saves you and draw, begins to draw you back into Christ's likeness he's gonna be teaching you what it means to walk like a Christian, of course. He's gonna be teaching you what, what God actually requires, of course, and then you will behave more justly in the world, of course, Those things do happen, but they are not the central mission. They are side effects. The mission is to call sinners, not righteous people, sinners, to turn from themselves, to turn back to trusting in God and to find life in him through Jesus, to be healed, to be brought back into relationship. And Jesus is about that mission with all sorts of people everywhere, no distinctions. In every place he finds them, in every nation, amongst every tribe, in every lifestyle, in every corner of every living room, draw a spectrum up and down, sideways and whatever, and Jesus is about pursuing people in every corner of that graph. He approaches and speaks mercy to all of them. Are you weary and heavy laden? Whoever you are, wherever you are, come. I'll give you rest. This is coming up in a couple chapters in Matthew. Are you tired? Do you know you're guilty? Do you feel the alienation from God? Do you know you don't know him? Come. He's saying that to everybody, no matter who or wherever you are. That's Jesus. It's Jesus on the mission, that's his mission. However, Matthew is the one who went around and called on all those different people and invited them over to his house. Jesus didn't do that, Matthew did that. And Jesus brought his disciples with him. Notice they're sitting there too. And as they're sitting there in that that setting, they're probably all first a little bit, what's going on here? But as time goes on and they watch how Jesus carries himself here, they learn something. They learned this this is what you're about. This is is who you are. I'm learning something about you, Jesus, and and your way and your, your purpose, your mission. And I'm hearing you answer the Pharisees when they raise the accusation. By the sovereign plan of God, none of this happens. This mission of Jesus, none of it happens without his disciples involved, engaged, active. So this ends up, in fact, meaning something for us. So, yes, it's Jesus' mission. He's the one doing the work, but we're the tools in his hands that he's going to use to do the work. He's going to work through us, his people. If we are to have hearts that are conformed to Christ, there needs to be something in there, in in us, in our hearts, that in some way is like what we see here in Jesus, that in some way uses what we are, where we are, who we know, the things we're around, in some way to try to connect them ones to this one. Evangelistically, certainly. Certainly people that we're around who do not know him at all and need to be at first introduced to him, certainly so. But I think not only evangelistically, because beyond that, we're around a whole bunch of people who we're not sure who they are or where they are, if they're Christians or not. We know they're Christians and and they're struggling to grow. And a spectrum of people, and all across that spectrum, we are to always be about helping people connect them ones to this one, I can use the words evangelistically or in a discipleship sense and in particular the the piece that this I think passage wants to press home on us is evangelistically discipleship sense this piece yes even those ones even those ones because I think, many Christians, I think if we're honest, many of us, we have some sort of a line beyond which there are types of people that we're not really interested in associating with. So if I was to say, evangelistically and discipleship-wise, help them ones connect to this one, there's a, what I'm saying is I think there's a line that before that line you say, like, okay, sure. And beyond that line, uh, no thanks. And this pastor's saying, Yep even them ones, beyond that line. We all have a line, I think, and to, to the degree that that line is just a function of your life stage or your personality, maybe that's normal and fine because none of us can genuinely be all things to all people. There, there are people that you're not going to connect with, you're not going to be around. Okay, they're, they're, sure, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the neighbor whose yard is carefully appointed with flags and banners proclaiming lifestyles you know are wrong. Or the coworker who recently announced to the office a new set of pronouns. A person who just is simply always taking credit for your work and making it hard for you at work, or who is just hard to get along with, self-centered, insulting. That might be a non-Christian at work, that might be another Christian in the church. But whoever it is, that, that person in your mind, that person who there's a line, and that person right there, I just try to avoid them ones. Not because I don't speak their language, not because we're in a really, really, really different place in life, but I'm right next to him and I just try to like not make eye contact because frankly, I don't like him. He's not good. Mercy. Do you see that person, that one as a sinner It's okay to keep that word. might not want to use that word. It might be insulting. But to keep that word in mind, as a sinner, sick, in need of a doctor, and I know a really good one. Maybe I can help connect you in some way. Or as, it's all in the tone here, right? As a sinner, sick, and in need of some judgment. And I know where to find that too. How do you see him? I was very helped a couple years back by a very brief article, and I'd cite the source and the author, but I can't remember. It was a magazine, it was, the author was a woman, and it was a short article. That's about the best I can do. Um, She was addressing something that I feel on this issue, and I think a lot of us feel on this issue, the kind of like the, yeah, but judgment's real. Jesus talked about that again and again and again and again at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Judgment's real. And all this mercy, 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 love, 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 aren't people going to think like, hey, this is great. She wrote, and I can't remember if she was quoting somebody else, but she said, if we're going to be, She was talking about grace, but grace and mercy are real closely connected so we can hold them here both. She's talking about grace. If we're going to be teachers, preachers, evangelists, disciples, if we're going to be ministers of the actual gospel of grace, we should take note of how the prime human minister of the gospel of grace acted, Paul. And we should take note of how Paul was misunderstood. People heard Paul, and you can tell because Paul's rebuttal, Paul's clarifying objection, people heard Paul as giving a get out of jail free card. People heard Paul, mistakenly, heard Paul as saying, Grace, 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 grace. And he had to say, No, 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 no. This is not grace that just entitles you to keep on sinning. That's his correction. Right? Think of the book of Romans. A couple times the book of Romans. That's his correction, which tells us when he preached it, how people misunderstood is not, they did not misunderstand him to talk about judgment. They misunderstood him to be talking about grace too much. If there's a line, you're walking right next to a creek or maybe on the curb next to a street, and you've got to try to walk a line, like we're trying to walk a line here between grace and mercy and judgment and justice. You're trying to walk a line here. It's tricky. Usually, we kind of keep our weight slanted a little bit away from the danger. Like if you're walking next to the street, you're probably a little bit leaning a little bit towards the sidewalk so that if you're bumped or knocked off, you fall into the sidewalk, not into the car, Right? If you're walking next to the stream, you're a little bit careful so that if you slip, you'll stumble towards the dry bank, not towards the water. We're trying to walk a tightrope here between grace and mercy and judgment and justice. And we need to, if we're going to be like Paul, like Jesus sitting in Matthew's living room, we need to keep our weight a little bit so that if we're bumped off, it'll sound like we gave away the farm with mercy and grace. That's Paul. Paul. And then we can correct. No, 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 I, I didn't mean to give away the farm. There's judgment coming. This is not an everything's fine world. He's a doctor who's come to heal and fix. We, we can clarify that, but we need to be sure that if people misunderstand us and mishear it, they hear it as too much grace and too much mercy. Not too much judgment, too much justice. That's Paul. That's Jesus. I think, at least for me, certainly up until the point of reading this article, I was really, really worried that people would hear me condoning their sin. Really, really worried that people would hear me condoning their sin. So I made double sure to know that they heard from me justice. I can't square that with the tone of Jesus here, with the tone of Paul. It's, I'm not trying to, to not walk the line, but I'm going to keep my weight a little bit on the grace and mercy side. So if I get misunderstood, if I get knocked off, it sounds like mercy and grace. And after all, is it not his kindness that leads us to repentance anyway? I think the Bible says that. Are you moving towards that person in mercy and with grace, or are you avoiding contact? Now, I mentioned this before, there is something really important and really wise to keep in mind, that sometimes contact is dangerous for us. Any doctor approaching a sick person takes precautions, whether it's a built-up immune system or a mask or whatever. And we need to be aware the Bible does say that bad company corrupts good character. So we should take into into consideration, am I gonna be helping them ones know this one or are they gonna be more helping me know their stuff? Keep that in mind. But that's a wise qualifier for the general point. Approach people in mercy like Jesus did. That's the challenge here, to be lovingly merciful like God desires of us like Jesus was and is with us. It will cost you. It'll be hard. The merciful one will fill you up. He'll give you what you need. Trust him. Come to him and then follow him on his mission of mercy. Let me pray. Father, would you help us, please, to be as rightly balanced as we can be, but to be really clear about mercy, to be really clear about grace, to be really clear about love, to be really clear about kindness, patience. We have to be because the stakes are so high because judgment is indeed coming. Help us to think about this well with ourselves, that you are a God who is so kind and so gracious and merciful towards us that think well about ourselves and about those around us also. Would you please balance out anything that I said that was wrong, that was, that was misapplied, that was perhaps misunderstood, not clear. Would you balance all that out and, and make your truth run in the midst of us to make us a people who both come to you because you are merciful and then go with you in mercy. Build your church in that regard, please. Thank you that you are this kind of God for us.
0: Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission.